You know, some Friday, uh, some 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was nailed to a cross outside the city walls of Jerusalem. When the cops came to arrest him, all of his friends bolted right, and hid. One of his closest friends, Peter, denied even knowing him. It's like, Jesus who? Never heard of him. They all, um, they all abandoned him. All, right? all of them uh, fearful uh, for their lives. But as this all happened, they weren't just gripped with fear. They were also filled uh, with despair. Um, you see, they had left everything to follow Jesus. And when I say everything, I really do mean everything. They left their home. They left their family. left their friends. They left their careers. All, right, to follow this guy named Jesus, who they had become convinced was the Messiah, right, the Christ. In their minds, the one who's going to make everything wrong right again. The one who's going to crush their enemies, chiefly the Romans. The one who's going to usher them into freedom. The one who's going to make Israel great again. But in the capital city of Jerusalem that weekend, Jesus is not cracking any Roman skulls. On the contrary, they're cracking his. Right? They're beating him up. They're whipping his back. And then they are nailing his hands and his feet uh, to a cross. Which is why when Jesus dies, they're not just lamenting the loss of a friend. Right? The hopes and dreams of the disciples dim and die on that day as well. I remember two Super Bowls ago, Super Bowl 51. I remember the moods of Pat fans like Owen, right, right before the game. Sheer confidence, right? We're going to get another ring. We're going to get another trophy. We've got this in the bag. And then I remember the profound uh, heavy mood, right, at halftime. There's this real sense of letdown. There's a sense of humiliation, of shame. The Pats are down 21 to 3. There's a sense of this game is over. People in the room at our house were watching it. Just turn it off. Turn it off. I can't stand to watch anymore. Um, We had magic uh, from Alan, right? Alan did a magic trip to sort of get our mind off the game. Those who spent thousands of dollars uh, to get a ticket to see the Super Bowl live were walking out of the stadium. Just this sense of loss, right? That's a small glimpse, just a little glimpse into the sort of feelings that the disciples felt that day. Only it was far, far worse. Because the disciples were not just losing a game, right? They were not just seeing their hopes and dreams sort of slip away. Right? They were losing a friend, a dearly beloved friend. To get closer to the ballpark of what they were experiencing, imagine a Pats fan leaving the stadium, feeling defeated. Right? The game is over. Our hopes of victory are dashed. And then imagine that same Pat's hand having to watch his family get tortured and murdered in the parking lot. That's kind of what they endured right, on Good Friday. Right? The so-called Good Friday really was that bad for them. Right? It's hard to overstate the depths of their pain, right? their sorrow, and their, their woe. But something happened. Okay, something happened three days later that transformed this group of cowardly, depressed, defeated, grief-stricken men into the boldest 
happiest, most hope-filled missionaries the world has ever known. Something happens that transforms this puddle of human misery and tears into an ocean of courage, love, and goodwill. Right, Peter, who only days before denied Jesus in order to save his own skin, will end up going to his death singing, crucified upside down, and he doesn't care. Right? What happened? What could possibly turn a bunch of chickens like the disciples into these bald eagles? Right? This bunch of cowards into a pride of lion hearts. I want to imagine, I want you to imagine that you are standing at the edge of Lake Champlain. Right? You're throwing little stones right into the lake and watching little ripples form around every falling stone. And then all of a sudden there's this gigantic splash, like kerplunk, right? And waves start lapping up against the shore. What on earth created that splash? Like what caused this commotion? Because something happened similarly, like something happened in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that shook the world, transformed a community and altered the course of human history. And I want to ask tonight, what rock caused those waves, and what difference does it make for you and me today? Those are my questions, and I want to answer them tonight by looking at two passages, one from the Gospel of Luke, the other from the Gospel of John. So follow along with me, if you would. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. Well, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they, that is a group of women, went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And now John 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, thanks for gathering us together to sing songs, to eat together, also to feast here, uh, even on your word. I pray you would help us to understand it. Uh, Give us your spirit that we might. We pray in Christ's name. Uh, Amen. You all, what was the stone um, that sent shockwaves around the globe and changed these men's lives? What did they witness right that Easter Sunday? See, Jesus was killed on Friday. Saturday, the disciples are all uh, in a state of shock. They're all in mourning. And then Sunday morning, the door to their home bursts open. That's not the police. It's a bunch of women. And they're speaking hurriedly, speaking really, really fast. And you can't tell at first what they're saying. Right? Are they panicked or are they excited? So you ask them to slow it down. Catching her breath, one of them explains what has just transpired at Jesus' tomb. See, we're going to the tomb of Jesus, right, to pay our respects. But when we got there, there were no soldiers standing guard. And the rock in front of Jesus' tomb had been rolled away, and we were confused what's going on. So we walked inside. And all of a sudden, there was this dazzling light, and two men appeared, and we fell because we were frightened. I said, what are you, what are you afraid of, right? Why are you looking for the living uh, among the dead? And as they're saying all of these things, like the first thought that flashes through your mind is, who stole the body? Why would somebody do this? Like, where is Jesus? But they keep talking, and so you're brought back into that moment. The voices of the woman bring you back to attention, We tiptoed in. We saw these men. Jesus is not alive. Or Jesus is not dead. He is alive, right? Just as he said he would be. Standing next to you, right? One of the disciples slams his hand on the table and says, Shut up. Shut up. He's dead. We saw him, right? We saw him crucified. We wrapped him up in in linen shrouds, right? We saw him put in a tomb, right? He is dead. You're only making this worse. But Peter stands up, and he runs out the door. He abandons his self-imposed house arrest, and he starts running faster and faster, not away from Jerusalem, but towards the tomb. And when he gets there, the tomb is just as the woman described, right? The soldiers are gone. The stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And lying on a shelf are grave clothes, right? Jesus' grave clothes wrapped up and lying neat in a pile. What is going on? Like, what has happened? The missing guards, the rolled away stone, the empty tomb, the linen clothes in a pile. What's the meaning behind all of this? Well, for the record, nobody, nobody, right, debates whether or not the tomb of Jesus was empty. That's not disputed. About this, this, there is universal agreement. But what is debated is why. Why was it empty? Some assert that the disciples of Jesus stole the body. Some assert that they stole the body in order to start a hoax. 
But this theory runs into problems right away. First of all, there's no motive, right? The disciples had nothing to gain by stealing his body and starting a hoax, and they had even more to lose. Right? Two days after Jesus' death, the disciples are not thinking, hey, you know what would, be, would, you know what would be cool? Let's punk somebody. Let's punk somebody by stealing Jesus' body. That'll be fun, right? That'll be hilarious. Two days after Jesus' death, they are not thinking that. They are not bored and feeling creative. They're not brainstorming ways to start a new religion. They are in shock. They are in misery. They are in the throes of depression. And in the mood they are in, they don't want to do anything, let alone leave the house. They could barely get out of bed. And shoot, even if they did want to steal the body, they wouldn't be able to. Because Roman soldiers were keeping watch of the tomb. All that is to say is the disciples had no motive, they had no drive, and they had no opportunity to steal Jesus' body. But the biggest objection to the theory that the disciples stole the body is this glaring fact. Every single one of the disciples faces hardship, ridicule, torture, and or dies a martyr's death. If they stole the body and they knew that the resurrection of Jesus was a lie one of them would have certainly cracked under pressure. If you stole Jesus' body and you know the whole thing is a sick, practical joke, that the resurrection of Jesus is not true but one gigantic lie, like when they start pulling out your fingernails, when they start chopping off body parts, when they start setting you on fire and nailing you to a cross and feeding you to lions, before any of that happens, you say, stop, 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 stop. It was just a joke. We stole the body. I know where it's hidden. I'll take you there. But nobody says that. Not a single one. Nobody, absolutely nobody, is willing to die for something that they know is a lie. As Blaise Pascal puts it, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. All right, you may be thinking, maybe the disciples didn't steal the body. Maybe the Jewish council did. Right? Maybe the Romans did. But that makes no sense. Look, the resurrection of Jesus presented a huge threat to the Jewish establishment, and it threatened Roman order and rule in the city. If they could have, they would have loved to have been able to produce Jesus' body. Right? Producing Jesus' body would have stopped the rumor of the resurrection dead in its tracks. But they couldn't produce a body. They couldn't produce a body because his body was never in their possession. His body was not stolen. Okay, you might say, maybe it wasn't stolen. But maybe the woman and the disciples simply stumbled upon the wrong tomb. But this explanation faces even more difficulties than the first. First of all, lots of people knew where Jesus was laid. He was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea was a public figure. And lots of people knew where his tomb was. And certainly, right, 
The Jews, the Romans, and the skeptics could have easily taken the disciples to the right tomb and presented Jesus' body there. It doesn't happen. Right? There is no doubt, friends, the tomb Jesus entered on Friday was empty on Sunday. Someone entered in and someone entered out. Not unlike a caterpillar entering a cocoon and emerging a butterfly. Jesus entering a tomb on Friday, but breaking out a few days later. The same, but different. Right? The same, but slightly different. This uh, brings me uh, to exhibit B, as it were, and the case for the resurrection, right? The stone that shook the world. If exhibit A is the empty tomb, exhibit B is the post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus himself. And the passages you heard read tonight, right? The disciples don't believe the reports of the empty tomb, right? They think it's an idle tale. Peter runs out to see for himself. Two other disciples leave town, right? Thinking, this game is over. It's time to go home. The rest of the disciples remain where they are. Still sad, still depressed, still defeated, still afraid. The doors, right, are locked, the text says, for fear of the Jews. That they're still out hunting for the Nazarenes. So that they might do to them what they did to Jesus. But even though the doors are locked, who enters but Jesus himself? Was the door actually locked? Did we forget to lock it? Or did he just walk through that door? Did he just walk through a wall? Is this a ghost? Is this an angel? Are we seeing things? Is this for real? This is not a hallucination. This is not a ghost. Y'all, the Jews had categories for both of those kinds of phenomena. They knew the difference between dreams and reality. They knew the difference between a phantom and a flesh and blood person with scars. They knew the difference. This is Jesus in the flesh. And it is a resurrected Jesus, not a resuscitated one. A half-dead, broken, beat-up Jesus would not be able to roll back a large stone and break past Roman guards. And a half-dead, broken, beat-up Jesus would never be able to convince his disciples that he conquered the grave and death itself. Nobody seeing a resuscitated Jesus would conclude, Hallelujah, resurrection, right? Praise the Lord, we get new bodies and new life. Nobody seeing Jesus in the shape that he was in on Friday would ever conclude that. He was dead on Friday. And he was dead on Saturday. The Jesus who entered the tomb is the same Jesus who is now standing in front of them. And he has the marks, right, to prove it. But there is something different about him, too. He is not broken. He is gloriously alive. Peace be with you, Jesus says, because no doubt they are afraid. They're terrified. They're in disbelief. And you and I would be too, right? 
you have never met a resurrected human being. And they had neither. So Jesus says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And then he shows them his hands. And he shows them his side. Right? And he says, touch it. I feel it. It's really me. Right? This, is, this is for real. This is really happening. I'm not dead. I'm alive. And all of a sudden, the room that was once hushed is now exploding with nervous and then shocked and joyful laughter. Right? They can hardly believe it. Like, it's almost too good to be true. But it is. Right? He's there in their arms. Now, when I was like seven or eight, my parents took my sister Taya and I out to dinner. And when we came back home, uh, we heard this yelping sound sort of coming from the dining room. And I ran around the corner, and what I saw was a golden retriever puppy just in a cage. And I remember just collapsing to the floor, crying. Not because I was sad, but because I was so overwhelmed with joy, with happiness. Well, John 20, 20 reads, Then the disciples were glad. That's a pretty weak translation. Okay? The Greek word there is a, a word that means ecstatic. Okay? The disciples were ecstatic. Those who were overwhelmed with grief are now completely overwhelmed with joy. They cannot believe their eyes. They can't believe their ears. They can't believe the sensation, right, of holding Jesus' hand again and it not be cold and lifeless, but warm and full of life. He was dead, but now he is alive, right? Gloriously alive. Well, for some reason, Thomas misses all of this. Like, he's not in the room. Like, maybe he drew the short straw and it was his turn to go and get takeout or something, right? When he comes back in the room, his friends find him and they're like, you will not believe what just happened, right? We have seen the Lord. He is alive after all. And Thomas is like, nonsense. Stop. Unless I see his hands and mark the mark of his nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand inside, unless I can do all of that, I will never believe. He's skeptical, not unlike you and I would be. But eight days later, Jesus shows up again. And he doesn't cuss Thomas out being like, why don't you believe, Thomas? What's the matter with you? Instead, right, he says, Thomas, put your finger here. Put your finger here. Put your hand here. Right? Don't disbelieve. Right? Believe. And he does. She says, right, you believe because you see. But blessed are all those who have not seen. Right? And yet believe. You all, appearances like this happen over the course of 40 days. And it's not like he appeared to like the eleven only. He appears to a man named Saul, who's later named Paul, a guy who was out murdering Christians at the time. He then appears to a group of more than five hundred people uh, at one time. He appears to his brother James, as Paul attests in 
uh, Acts 26, right? None of this is done in a corner. Like, not, none of this is done in secret. All of this is happening out in the open. It's public knowledge. You combined with the empty tomb, the post-crucifixion of Jesus, uh, the post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus strongly support and attest to the reality of the resurrection. Well, there are other evidences that really support the veracity of this claim that Jesus is alive, right? That he is not dead. But for the sake of time, let me just highlight one more, okay? It's not just what the disciples witnessed. It's not just what they saw and heard and touched, but it's also what they witnessed in court, as it were. It's what they themselves wrote. Look, if you were a disciple making this story up, if you thought it was your job to make up this story and convince a, a bunch of people that this is true, you would never, ever, not in a million years, tell the story this way. First of all, you would never make women be the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. You know, regrettably, in Jesus' day and age, women were regarded as second-class citizens. Their low social status meant that their testimony would not be admissible in a court of law. And that's not fair, and that's not right, but it is the way that it was back then. And because this is the way it was back then, if you were making this story up, you would have Peter, James, or John, right, the leaders of the early church, be the first to discover the empty tomb. Right? Their testimony would be admissible. It would count. You have nothing to gain and you have everything to lose right, by having women be the first eyewitnesses. The only reason to tell the story this way is because this is the way it really happened. You would only write it this way if you were telling the truth. And secondly, if you were a disciple making this story up, you are not going to cast yourself in such a negative light as we see here. Right? In the gospel accounts, the disciples, which is to say the early church leaders, are portrayed as skeptical and angry and full of doubt. And this is obviously counterproductive if you want people to trust you and your authority. Better to present yourself as cool and quick to believe and ready to receive the resurrection. So why write it like this? Well, because it's true. Because this is accurate. Because the gospel writers are not trying to cover something up. They're not trying to sell you something. They're not trying to deceive you or hoodwink you. They're simply presenting the facts as they happened And it doesn't matter if the facts are counterproductive or not. What's written here is what really happened. They are simply telling you the truth. The empty tomb, the post-crucifixion appearances of Jesus, the testimonies themselves, and all of them signs pointing in one direction. Jesus is alive. The resurrection is real, and it really happened. As one theologian has written, if there is a giant hole in history, a hole of the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? 
Let me say that again. If there's a hole in history, a hole the size and shape of the resurrection, what does the secular historian propose to stop it up with? Now, I know that belief in the resurrection is a stretch for some of you. It was for me too, right? But how else can you account for all of these things? I don't want you to believe in the resurrection blindly. What do you think of Thomas? You know, Jesus does not say, just believe, Thomas. Right? He's willing to present evidence before you. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. He says, believe me on the basis of the evidence. On the basis of the evidence. Put your hand here. Feel the scars. Study this. Test it. Verify it. And here's the thing, right? If it's true, believe it. If it's true, this is of infinite importance. If it's not true, it's of zero. The one thing it can't be is eh, sort of important. If this is real and really happened, this is of infinite importance to you. But let's flush that out some. This is the, sort of the last sort of points that I want to make to you. I've wanted to show you tonight, like, look, what is, the, what is this event that happened that changed these cowards into bold, courageous, life-loving men, right, willing to lay down their lives in service to others? Like, what happened that, to account for that transformation, right? You know, what is this event that really altered the course of history? I've tried to show you, right, has everything to do with an empty tomb, and the post-crucified appearances of Jesus, right, and some of these testimonies themselves. But what does, what, how does this really impact our lives? Like, what difference does it really make? I've got three sort of brief observations I just want to share with you. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus means that death is not a dead end, but a door. The resurrection of Jesus means that your death is not a dead end, but a door. Unless Jesus comes back tonight or tomorrow, sometime soon, right? You are going to live and you are going to die. You will be buried, right? We live, we die, and we buried our loved ones, and we think, will I ever see them again? Right? Is there anything beyond the grave? And before the resurrection, we had promises right, that there was, that there is, and that we need not be afraid. But how can you be sure? How can you be sure if there's life beyond the grave? There's always right, this little tinge of doubt. Right? Is life after death just wishful thinking? hard to shake that thought. But the resurrection of Jesus confirms something for us. It confirms that this is not wishful thinking. That what we actually long for, what we actually most desire is actually something that exists. The death, it's not the end of Jesus' story and it's not going to be the end of yours either. 
Death is not a dead end, friends. It is a door. And it is a door that we must all go through. But if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, it's not a door you need to be afraid to walk through. Jesus has gone through it before you. And when you walk through it with him, you will be with him and where he is now and forever. You'll be in heaven, right? Glorious and complete. Death is not a dead end, right? It is a door. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus means that you don't need to get it all right now. You don't need to get it all right now. If you disbelieve the resurrection, if you disbelieve in life after death, what that means is you only have this life, right? YOLO, right? You only live once. And if you only live once, there is tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure for you to get it all right now. You need to be living your best life right now. Time is ticking, friends. Life is running out. You know how much stress and anxiety this causes? Right? YOLO leads to FOMO, Right? This idea that you only live once creates the conditions for this fear of missing out. There's so many better things that are happening around me. Everybody else is living a better life than I am right now. And that's a problem because I only have this life. Right? So you try to hold on to life really tightly. You've got to get it all. And like sand, the tighter you grip it, the faster it slips through your fingers. Ironically, your strong desire for life makes the life you are living undesirable. Do you all get that? Do you see the irony in that? The resurrection means that you don't have to get it all right now. You don't have to live your best life now because the best is yet to come. Don't look for the best in a beautiful but broken world. The best is in the new heavens and new earth that's coming down the pike. You can hold on to things, even loved ones, open-handedly, like receiving a present. We hold tightly to things because we're afraid that there is nothing else to receive. We hold tightly to things because we think this is all that I'm ever going to get. But the resurrection proves that No, there's more coming. So you can open up your hands. Be ready to receive more. It loosens your grip. If you're going to hold tightly to anything or anyone, I suggest you hold tightly to Jesus. If you insist on holding tightly to something or someone, let it be him. There's much to look forward to. Thirdly and finally, the resurrection of Jesus means that you must pay much closer attention to Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus means that you need to pay much closer attention to him. Y'all, Jesus said that he was going to die for the forgiveness of yours and my sins and that he was going to be raised from the grave three days later. He said this while he was still alive, before his death on the cross. 
If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, that means Jesus is a liar. You have no reason to listen to him or to believe anything he said, let alone that your sins are forgiven. However, if Jesus is raised from the dead, like he said he would be, Jesus was telling the truth. He's been telling the truth all along. Which means that your sins are forgiven as promised, but also that he is the Lord. And you need to put your faith and trust in him. He is not your butler. He is your maker. And you will find your life to be whole and complete. Not as you try to squeeze him into your pocket, but as you follow him. As you let him lead. You need to pay much closer attention to him. Right, not less. Let me conclude with this. Willa has a book on her shelf that we read to her from time to time, at bedtime. It's called Water Bugs and Dragonflies. Okay. Story simple. Under the water live a bunch of water bugs. From time to time, one of the water bugs will climb up lilies like a lily pad stalk, and disappear. They rise to the surface of the water, and they never return. The other water bugs are curious. They're like, what's going on? Like, what's, where are all they going? Like, why are they going, and why aren't they coming back? So one of the water bugs hatches a plan. He tells his friends that he's going to explore the other side of the water, right? Explore life above the surface. He's going to check things out, and then he's going to come back and tell them, what's on the other side. And they all agree. They're like, that's a good idea. Go do that. So sure enough, he goes to the surface. And when he breaks through, he discovers this whole new world full of color and sunlight. And in the sunlight, his body dries off and these dragon wings sort of pop out. After this water bug turned dragonfly flies around and explores this above the water world, he remembers the plan. He's like, i got to go back to my friends and I've got to tell them about all these things that they can expect right on the other side. But as he flies to the water, he lands on it and he cannot penetrate it. He can't penetrate the water because of his wings. And that's kind of how the story ends. Dragonfly realizes that his friends will just going to have to wait and see what's on the other side and join him. I know, it's kind of a weird story, right? (laughs) It's cute. And it's a little bit true to a point, right? But here's where we have something better. Okay? We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait to know what's on the other side, right? Above, Above the surface. Jesus is the water bug, now dragonfly, who has found a way back in. He's not stuck on the surface. He has found a way to get in and to tell us what life is like over there, what life is like up there. So we don't have to be afraid, and we don't have to be anxious as our family and friends slowly but surely disappear. The resurrection of Jesus is a great kindness to us. 
Because of it, we may know for certain that Jesus is worth following, and where he comes from is someplace good. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas, right, the doubter, he says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. But from now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. The resurrection is real, and it's really good news. And it's good news for you. Let's receive it with joy. Let's pray.